Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Well, hello, and thanks for joining us for the Bible Study Podcast, where we're continuing to make our way through the Gospel of Mark. We're coming in this message now to chapter 9, where we're going to embark upon the second half of this action-packed gospel. At this point, Jesus is less than a year away from his appointment at the cross, and he's pretty much wrapping up his public ministry up in Galilee. Soon, he and his disciples will be making their way towards Jerusalem. One of the more popular songs recorded by the Beatles is called In My Life, that was written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. The song lyrics include the words, there are places I'll remember all my life. And then a few lines later, all these places have their moments. Every person can relate to those lyrics, especially since we all have, well, particular places and monumental moments in our lives, which we'll never forget. For the disciples collectively, those unforgettable moments, I think, would have included seeing Jesus for the first time after he resurrected from the dead, as well as watching him ascend up to heaven from the Mount of Olives. For the Apostle John individually, it would have included witnessing the crucifixion of Jesus at Calvary. For Peter, James, and John together, they would never forget being with Jesus when he raised the daughter of Jairus up from the dead or being in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus agonized in prayer, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood shortly before his arrest. Another unforgettable moment in the lives of those three disciples would have been witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus, which is the story before us now in Mark chapter 9. Just before this passage, we had read about Jesus and the disciples being up in the northern region of Caesarea Philippi, where Peter, you'll remember, had made his bold confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. With that understanding in the hearts of the disciples, Jesus took that opportunity to tell them for the first time that he would be rejected, he would suffer, and then he would die. This prompted Peter to take Jesus aside to rebuke rebuke him for such foolish talk. At this point then, I think the disciples understood the person of Jesus, that he was the Messiah, but not the plan of Jesus, that he must suffer, die, and rise again. As we had discussed, all of the Jews, including the disciples, were awaiting a Messiah who would come to overthrow the authority of Rome and set up the heavenly kingdom there on earth. But Jesus had come for the specific purpose of dying and atoning for sins and then conquering death through his resurrection. So Jesus rebuked Peter, and specifically he rebuked Satan, who was speaking through Peter. Afterwards, Jesus spoke to the disciples and to the crowd about the costs and requirement of following him as a genuine believer, to deny yourself and to die to yourself. Then in Mark 9-1, which I think probably fits better at the end of chapter 8, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, 
There are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of heaven and of God present with power. When Jesus spoke to them about his suffering and death, not only did the disciples not comprehend it, but I think it brought sorrow and sadness to their hearts. So I think as an encouragement to them, Jesus made this next announcement that some of them would see and experience the kingdom of God before they died. The fulfillment of that promise of Jesus didn't take very long to unfold, and let's read about that now as we pick back up in verse 2 of chapter 9. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because Peter did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came over and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. As many of us know, the account of the transfiguration is recorded in the first three Gospels. It's in Matthew 17, it's in Luke 9, and of course here in Mark 9. Some will say that it's not recorded in John's Gospel, but I actually disagree with them. In John 1.14, we read of Jesus, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and listen, we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. Since Jesus clearly lived on the earth veiled by his humanity, those words would then describe the divine glory of Jesus revealed to John and the other two disciples at the transfiguration. John, one of the three, was an eyewitness of Christ's glory on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. In addition to the Gospels, it's also referred to by Peter, another eyewitness to the transfiguration. He mentions it in his second epistle. In 2 Peter 1.18, Peter writes, they heard that they heard the voice of God from heaven when they were with Jesus on the holy mountain. And that's a clear reference to their experience at the transfiguration. We read here in verse 2 that about a week after those other events that we talked about, Peter's confession and all of that, that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up on a mountain. Jesus only took those three, his so-called inner circle of disciples, if you will, as he had done on a few other occasions. Of that high mountain, Peter describes it in his epistle that I read to you as the holy mountain. And when we remember Moses meeting with God on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, God told Moses that he was standing on holy ground. What made those mountains holy and the ground sacred was God's divine presence. And so I'm titling this message, Holy Ground. A natural question that arises then is which mountain this was. The answer is we don't know for certain, and there are two prevailing opinions. The first opinion is that the transfiguration took place on Mount Tabor. Tabor is about 50 miles south of Caesarea Philippi, where they had been, and it's even further south of the Sea of Galilee. They certainly could have walked there in the six days that is mentioned there in verse 2. 
I've been to Mount Tabor. We actually drove the winding roads up to the top where there is a Franciscan church built about 100 years ago. It's called the Church of the Transfiguration. The church even has three chapels, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The other prevailing opinion is that the transfiguration took place somewhere up on Mount Hermon, which is just a little further north of Caesarea Philippi. In my opinion, Mount Hermon makes much more sense as the place where the transfiguration would have taken place for a few reasons. For one, Mount Hermon is right there in the same vicinity as Caesarea Philippi, just a little further north, where the previous connected events had already taken place. It's not far from where Peter confessed Jesus as Christ and where Jesus announced his suffering and death and where Jesus also spoke of the cost of following him. So it seems likely that it was also there in that same area that Jesus gave those three disciples a glimpse of his divine glory. Secondly, in Luke's gospel, he describes it as the mountain, which indicates it would have been the mountain there in the same area that they already were uh, at, as opposed to Mount Tabor, 50 miles away. Thirdly, the text here and in Matthew's gospel describe it as a high mountain. Now, Mount Hermon is uh, almost 10,000 feet high, while Mount Tabor is actually just a large hill and rises less than 1,400 feet above the surrounding plains. I would also add that Tabor sits in an open plain with roads and villages around it, whereas Hermon is much more secluded up in the north and therefore a more likely location for where Jesus would reveal his glory privately to his disciples. Whatever the location may have been, we read here in verse 2 that Jesus was transfigured before them. The Greek word used here for transfigured is metamorpho, which gives us the English word metamorphosis. Meta means change and morph means uh, form. So it's a change in form. It describes a change in form on the outside that emanates or comes from the inside. When we were all in school, we all learned about the metamorphosis of a caterpillar changing into a butterfly. The word transfigure is also made up of two words, trans and figure. The word trans means crossing over. Like if you take a transatlantic flight to go visit Israel, you're crossing over the Atlantic Ocean. In the transfiguration, then, Jesus crossed over from his humanity to his divinity. The humanity of Jesus veiled his divine nature, and at the transfiguration, then, Jesus pulled back that veil. And so on this unique occasion, Jesus allowed three of his disciples to see and experience his divine glory. You know, if you look at a list of miracles of Jesus, the transfiguration probably isn't on that list. And yet, in my opinion, this was truly a great miracle, you know, right up there with Christ's resurrection. No wonder that Peter wrote, we were witnesses of his majesty. Jesus had spoken to them about his upcoming suffering and death, which did not make sense to them. So this glimpse of his divine glory would confirm to them that he was God and would also comfort them as they made their way towards Jerusalem. In verse 3, we read that the clothes of Jesus were shining and were exceedingly white like snow, far beyond what any well, laundry service or dry cleaners could produce. 
I heard comedian Jerry Seinfeld talking about TV commercials, and he said, they're showing us on TV how detergents will remove bloodstains. I'm thinking that if you've got a t-shirt with bloodstains all over it, well, maybe laundry isn't your biggest problem. The exceptionally bright whiteness of Christ's appearance was his divine glory. The humanity of Jesus, again, veiled his divine glory, which he allowed the disciples to see here. Matthew's gospel states that the face of Jesus shined forth like the sun. You probably remember that same description of Moses after his encounter with God on Mount Sinai in Exodus 33. Up on that mountain, God promised Moses that his presence would go with him as he led the children of Israel towards the promised land. This, in turn, prompted Moses to ask God to show him his glory. God told Moses that he would never survive seeing God's full glory, so instead God placed Moses in the crevice of the rocks up there on Mount Sinai and gave him a very brief glimpse as the presence of God passed by. Afterwards, as Moses returned down the mountain to Aaron and the people, he didn't realize that his face was shining brightly as it from his experience of witnessing God's glory. His face shined so brightly that everyone was afraid to go near him, so Moses had a veil placed over his face until the glory had faded. The humanity of Jesus was like that veil. It concealed his glory. Of course, the big difference between Jesus and Moses is that the brightness of Moses was simply a reflection of God's glory, just like the light of the moon is a reflection of the sun. But the brightness of Jesus here was the result of his own personal divine glory because he was the Son of God, is the Son of God. In John's gospel, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. And also in Revelation 22, don't forget, we read that in the heavenly kingdom, there will be no darkness and there will be no need of the sun because the Lord Jesus himself will be the source of our light. Luke's gospel gives us the added details that as they initially went up that mountain, Jesus was going up there to pray. And as he was praying, the three disciples had fallen asleep. Sounds familiar, right? You know, sleep is a wonderful gift of God that we need each and every day. We remember how Daniel was able to fall asleep in the lion's den and how Peter had fallen asleep in prison while chained between two Roman guards. In both those situations, they were facing impending death, but the peace of God was their pillow. Over the years, I've had believers tell me that they struggle with Bible reading because it makes them sleepy, or they struggle with prayer for the same reason. I can also tell you from personal experience that while teaching from the pulpit in church, I see people getting sleepy and some of them closing their eyes. And I have to tell you, even as my mouth is speaking my sermon, my mind is yelling out, hey, you in the third row, wake up. (laughs) I think we can cut the disciples some slack here because remember, they had just finished climbing up a high mountain, so they would have been tired and ready for a nap. Luke tells us that those three disciples were heavy with sleep. Suddenly, when they woke up, they saw Jesus shining like the sun and chit-chatting with Moses and Elijah. You know, if you've ever fallen asleep during a movie and then you woke up to discover that the whole story had changed, then you might have some sense of what happened here. Jesus was by himself praying, the disciples nodded off, and now they wake up to find Jesus, Moses, and Elijah having a discussion. 
and they needed their sunglasses because Jesus was shining like the sun. It's significant that both Moses and Elijah appeared here with Jesus. Moses was God's appointed lawgiver in the Old Testament. He represented the Old Testament law, while Elijah represented the Old Testament prophets. And here now we see the law and the prophets finding their New Testament fulfillment in the person of Jesus. When Jesus walked with those two discouraged disciples on the road to Emmaus on Resurrection Sunday, remember we read that Jesus, beginning at Moses and the prophets, expounded to them all the things concerning him. The Old Testament law and prophets pointed towards and prepared people for the coming Messiah. Also, God had met with both Moses and Elijah on a mountain in the Old Testament. Going back to Exodus, we read a few different times about Moses climbing up Mount Sinai and meeting with God. Later on in 1 Kings 19, after Elijah had fled from the death threats issued by Queen Jezebel, he also ended up at Mount Sinai where God met with him and spoke to him in a cave. For Moses then, he had now finally made it into the promised land of Israel. You remember that because Moses had sinned, By failing to honor God at one point, the Lord did not allow him to lead the people across the border and into the promised land. He saw it with his eyes, but then he died outside the land. But here now, Moses is finally standing in the promised land. I think we're happy for him at that point. And for Elijah, who had been caught up to heaven in a chariot of fire, he was now returning to the promised land. Interestingly, both Moses and Elijah had experienced unusual departures from the world. Moses had climbed up Mount Nebo, where again he could see the promised land in the distance, but then he died there in the land of Moab, just on the other side of the border. The final chapter in Deuteronomy tells us that God buried Moses and not any person. Therefore, only God knows where Moses was buried. Later on in the New Testament epistle of Jude, we read that Michael, the archangel, and Satan fought over the dead body of Moses. That's a, that's a crazy piece of information. And no further explanation is given, but it seems possible that as God secretly buried the body of Moses, the devil was trying to perhaps learn the location so that he could maybe use the body of Moses for his own demonic purposes, perhaps as an idol for the people to worship. They already kind of idolized um, Moses because he spoke on behalf of God, though they were angry at him for times. They did idolize him, and perhaps the devil wanted to carry that idea on. We don't know. Whatever was going on, Michael fought with Satan and prevented him from discovering the body or using it. And then, as already mentioned, Elijah did not die physically, but was caught up to heaven by God in a chariot of fire. Now, their return to earth is just as dramatic here at the Transfiguration. Let's also remember that Moses had died some 1,500 years earlier and Elijah 900 years earlier, reminding us of the words of Jesus that the Father is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. It's also worth mentioning that in Revelation 11, we read about two witnesses from heaven who will appear during the tribulation period and prophesy on behalf of God. It was the Apostle John who wrote about those two witnesses, and remember, John is one of the three disciples here at the Transfiguration. The names of those two witnesses are not given to us in Revelation 11. However, 
John does describe their miraculous powers to turn water into blood and to strike the earth with plagues, just as God had done through Moses, and also to keep rain from falling for three and a half years while they prophesy on the earth, exactly as God had done through Elijah. Therefore, many Bible students, myself included, believe that the two witnesses in Revelation 11 in the future tribulation period will be none other than Moses and Elijah. Here in verse 4, we read that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus, and Warren Wiersbe called this the greatest Bible conference ever held on earth. Hard to argue with that. Luke tells us that they were talking about Christ's future uh, decease or departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. In other words, Christ's forthcoming death on the cross. Listen, Jesus was transfigured on the mountain as the Son of God. Then he was disfigured on the cross as the Lamb of God. The Greek word that Luke uses here for departure is exodus, giving us our English word of exodus. They were discussing the impending death of Jesus on the cross, which would be followed by Christ's departure, his exodus from the earth and back to heaven. Imagine being there and listening to Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah. Uh, I would have loved to have been there. In verse 5, after the three amigos woke up, Peter rubbed his sleepy eyes and then blurted out, Teacher, it's good for us to be here. Now let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Mark continues here in verse 6 and explains that Peter said this for two reasons, because he didn't know what else to say and because he and the other disciples were very afraid. Luke gives the added detail that Peter spoke up as Moses and Elijah were leaving. As a piece of practical application for all of us, whenever we don't know what to say, it's best that we just keep quiet and not say anything. But true to his impetuous character, Peter just had to say something. In fact, Mark tells us here that Peter didn't know what to say, and then Luke tells us that Peter didn't know what he had said. Poor Simon Peter. He didn't know what to say or what he had said even after he said it. Peter, not knowing what to say, though, had never stopped him from opening his mouth and trying. If anyone listening to this message sees themselves in Peter right now, let it be a lesson learned, and in the words of Abraham Lincoln, better to remain silent and thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. Many years ago, I helped to organize and host Bible and gospel conferences for our church, and we had some very gifted speakers uh, like John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, Chuck Swindoll, and Tony Evans. And uh, as I was in the back room or the green room area where those speakers were being hosted, they were having discussions and conversations between themselves. Uh, there was definitely some joking and kidding going on between them, but there was also some serious theological discussion as well. Now listen, I'm not the smartest guy you're ever going to meet, but I was smart enough on that day to keep my mouth shut and my ears open. I simply listened and took advantage of the blessing of being able to hear those godly men talk about a couple of different doctrinal and theological subjects. Unfortunately, far too often, I'm very much like Simon Peter, and I feel like I have to say something. 
Peter's suggestion that they build three tabernacles or shelters, one for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, indicates Peter's, I think, continued desire to establish the kingdom there on earth, for Christ to establish his kingdom right then and there. As he had done earlier when he attempted to rebuke the Lord, Peter wanted Jesus to skip all that nonsense about suffering and dying and just go ahead and set up his kingdom now. After all, Moses and Elijah were already there and they could serve right alongside of him. On a side note, a question that gets asked oftentimes during uh, Bible question and answer is whether or not we'll recognize each other when we get to heaven. Will you recognize your loved ones and friends? And I firmly believe the answer is yes. And here in our story, notice how Peter immediately, he woke up out of his nap and he immediately recognized Moses and Elijah without being told who they were. Peter had obviously never met them since they both lived hundreds of years earlier, and yet no introductions had been given. Peter just knew who they were. And so how much more will we immediately recognize our loved ones and friends when we get to heaven? I'd also like to make a brief observation about the final words in verse 6, that the disciples were greatly afraid. Now remember, these disciples have been walking and talking and hanging out with Jesus every day for over two years. And yet, when Jesus was transfigured, they were greatly afraid which, by the way, was the normal reaction whenever the Lord appeared to people in the Bible. They would usually fall down on their faces in awe or fear, and then God would tell them, do not be afraid. My point is that we want to be very careful that we don't lose a healthy fear or awe of God in our lives. More and more today, the emphasis is on how God loves you, God gets you, and that God wants to help you. And, and listen, that's true, and I'm very grateful for all of that truth in my own life personally. But along with that, let's not lose sight that God is holy, God is righteous, God is sovereign, and he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. We don't read here that Peter and the boys were high-fiving Jesus or Moses or Elijah or asking for their autographs. Matthew tells us they were face down on the ground and very afraid. And so, as we enjoy the love and goodness of God in our lives, let's not lose the respect and reverence and awe that belongs only to him. Well, at this point, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and the cloud was symbolic of the presence of God. We remember the word overshadowed from the account of the Virgin Mary and her legitimate question to the angel Gabriel as to how she would give birth to the Messiah since she herself was still a virgin. Gabriel declared to Mary, The power of the highest shall overshadow you, and you will uh, conceive a child who will be called the Son of God. Here now, that same overshadowing presence of God was on the mountain, and the Father's voice spoke forth, saying of Jesus, This is my beloved Son, hear him. I believe that there's two important things to glean here from the Father's words. First off, God was saying, especially to Peter, stop talking and start listening to my son. Luke adds that Peter was still talking when the cloud appeared. <laughs> In just a practical sense, I think for all of us, we need to talk less and listen more. And then especially as we commune with God, we also need to talk less and listen more. It's important for us to pray and to talk to God about our requests and our needs, but we also need to just quiet ourselves and listen to him. 
we listen to him as we read his word, but I think there's also a place for hearing God's still small voice in the quietness of our hearts. You know, the fact that the Bible refers to God speaking in a still small voice reminds us that we must quiet our hearts and minds and draw close to him in order to hear him. Secondly, since Moses and Elijah represent the Old Testament law and prophets, and since Peter was wanting to build shelters for all three of them, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, it seems that Peter was sort of looking at them as equals and on the same level of authority. However, all of the Old Testament law and prophets pointed forward and prepared people for the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God, God come in the flesh. Here now, Moses and Elijah were gone, only Jesus remained, and the Father says, hear him. We find that truth reinforced in Hebrews 1, where it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, and he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That pretty much sums up the transfiguration right there. God spoke through the prophets like Moses and Elijah, but now speaks to us through Jesus, who is the brightness of God. And so then we're out of time, and we'll pick up what happened next in this story in our next podcast study. But as we close, let's end our time by briefly reviewing what the transfiguration shows us. For one, it shows us that Jesus is God. That's clear. As Jesus was transfigured before those disciples, they saw his divine glory that had been previously veiled by his humanity. Secondly, it shows us that the Old Testament pointed towards the New Testament and to the revelation of Jesus. All of the law and the prophets were fulfilled in Christ. As we read in John 1.17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. The law revealed our need for Christ, and the prophets foretold of Christ. And then thirdly, it shows us that he's the God of the living and not the dead. Moses and Elijah were never more alive than they were that day on the mountain with Jesus. And for all of us, we will live eternally with Christ in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.